Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. The Israelite nation in Egypt, they stayed past their welcome. Joseph dies off, Pharaoh dies off, new Pharaoh comes in, new Pharaoh after that comes in, and so on. Joseph is but a long distant memory to the Egyptians, not to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians. And this Pharaoh doesn't care about how wonderful the Israelites had been and how they had saved, you know, what was the seven-year famine? Anybody remember a seven-year famine? That was 400 years ago. We are now entering the book of Exodus. Exodus comes right after Genesis. Remember the books of the Torah? The books of the Pentateuch? Let's everybody say together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, the word Exodus means departure. And in this phase of Israel's history is when they meet their first deliverer. In a way, Joseph was a deliverer because he delivered them from the famine. But now Moses is going to deliver them from slavery. Jesus delivered us from the slavery of sin. So this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Moses is their first Messiah. Okay. Jacob and his family were sheep herders and goat herders. And they multiplied so much over the next couple of centuries to be two million people in the tribe. Jacob's tribe had two million people, the tribe of Israel. But they never became like the Egyptians. They stayed separate from the Egyptians. They did not mingle in with the Egyptians in their towns, but they formed in the land of Goshen, which is part of Egypt, they formed their own community. They stuck with their God instead of absorbing the Egyptian gods, which is exactly what God wanted from them. But, because they prospered, one of the results of sticking with God was, was that they prospered, but because they prospered, they left God in a way. They no longer felt that they needed to depend on God. They were able to depend on themselves for whatever they needed. So they lost some of that relationship with God that involves dependency. We need to look at our lives and how much are we really dependent on God and how much of our lives are we handling on our own because things are working out okay. I'm sure in here everybody could tell a story of a time in life when things got so bad we finally turned to God for help. We forget to turn to God when things are going good. We need the suffering in order to remember that we need God. God wants us to be dependent upon him in all things. That means that even when I have a good day, I need to be saying, okay, God, what do you want me to be doing with this good day? What do you want me to wear today? What do you want me to eat today? Where do you want me to eat today? Ralph, I think God's saying we should go out to dinner. I don't feel like cooking. Anybody ever hear God say this? Terry, of course, it would be your own name there. You've been working plenty hard. Today, I want you to put your feet up and not do the housework or the yard chores. Seriously, though, we forget to turn to God and depend on him for what should we get done today and what should we not get done today? Should I remember to put my feet up today because I've been working so hard? What does God want me to do? Sometimes God says, get busy, and sometimes God says, sit back and relax. 
With him, there is always perfect balance. With him, there is never burnout. When we burn out, it's because we're not depending on him for what should we do and not do. A Christian should never experience burnout. A Christian should never be a workaholic. Uh Here's some mumblings about that. So the Israelites were forgetting to depend on God. And Pharaoh was beginning to get nervous about these two million Israelites because they were so prosperous. They were multiplying like rabbits. They might take over the kingdom. So Pharaoh says, I know a way to prevent that from happening. We'll make them our slaves. They'll never take over if we're superior to them and have authority over them and work them to death. The Pharaoh's name was Amos. There's an importance to this name. Pharaoh Amos says, all these Israelites around, if a war breaks out with any of our enemies, what if the Israelites side with the enemy? We're going to be really outnumbered then. After he enslaved them, the Israelites continued to multiply. Remember God's very first covenant, be fruitful and multiply. So Amos ordered all the Hebrew boys to be killed at birth. Moses was born, but he wasn't named Moses yet. He was just this little itty-bitty nameless boy. And his mother wanted to save him from this edict. By the way, where do we also have in the Bible where the firstborns were killed? When Jesus was born. This was the first set of holy innocents. It's all connected. So Moses' mother hid him, you know, to save his life, hid him in a basket and floated him down the Nile. His older sister is watching from the banks to see what happens to him. Guess where God sends this little basket, this little boat? Right to the Pharaoh's daughter. Because the Pharaoh's daughter thought, Oh, look how cute a little baby. Her mothering instincts came out in full force. God knew this was going to happen. So she took him, rescued him from the Nile, and said, well, you know, I'm not able to feed this child. They didn't have formula back then and bottles. So she had to find a nursemaid to feed this infant. And guess who she got? Moses' mother. Wasn't that a nice arrangement? She didn't know it was Moses' mother, but God worked it out. The Pharaoh's daughter is his adopted mom now, and she wants to give him a name, of course. So she takes the name of her dad and takes off the end of it and makes the name Moses. Amos becomes Moses. That's where Moses' name comes from. What the word Amos means, the god Ah is born. Mos, M-O-S-E, means is born. Ah was the name of an Egyptian god. So Amos means the god Ah is born. Moses, the false god, is removed from Moses, and it just means is born. And we can add to that the deliverer, the first Messiah for the Israelite people is born. And on Christmas morning, we can see the connection. When we think about Jesus is born, we can remember that the name Moses means is born. And, of course, since he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses was raised as an Egyptian noble. But he always knew he was an Israelite. Whenever he saw his people being mistreated, which they were all the time, he got really upset about it. Here he was protected. His identity was kept secret. 
but he knew who he was. And he has to go around looking and acting like an Egyptian noble and seeing all of his own people getting mistreated. He's a very angry man. He's a constantly angry man. And with that anger one day, he finally kills somebody. An Egyptian was beating up an Israelite slave. Moses saw it. Moses killed the Egyptian. Moses tried to hide the body. But the next day, some of the Israelites, they got into a little fight. And Moses breaks up their fight. And they say, oh, are you going to kill us too like you did that Egyptian? And Moses goes, oh my gosh, I thought this was a secret. I didn't know the word got out. Now my life's in danger. I've got to run. So he fled to Midian. There we go with Midian again. Remember, Midian was the great-grandchild of Abraham and his second wife, Keturah. Where he went was the southeastern Sinai Desert. If you look on your map that shows you Egypt and Iraq and all that, you see where the Red Sea is on the bottom. Is like a little peninsula that comes down. It kind of looks like that. It's actually two very wide rivers on the other, either side there. Near the bottom of that point is where Mount Sinai is. That whole area is the Sinai area. And this is where Moses flees to. You can see where Egypt is, so it's not too far away that he's fled. There he marries the daughter of a pagan priest. And for 40 years, he tended his father-in-law's flocks. He didn't even own his own property. He went from living like a noble to living like a slave himself. He'd grown up watching all of his people be treated like slaves, and now all of a sudden he's in their shoes in a way. He's not really a slave, more like a servant taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. And this was for 40 years. Now, he was 40 years old when he fled from Egypt. And we can divide his lifetime up into three sets of 40 years. In the first 40 years, his attitude was, and this shows a growth of spirituality. This shows, that's what I'm looking for, a representation or a model of what the Israelite nation went through and what we ourselves go through. The first 40 years of his life, his attitude was, I am everything. I am everything. I'm like God. I'm in control. I'm the center of the universe. I am everything. Remember when we were like that? The second 40 years, he felt this way. I am nothing. Who am I? Ever feel that way? His third 40 years, which are going to be when he goes and rescues his people from Pharaoh and then leads the people through the desert for 40 years, this is his attitude. God is everything. He went from I am everything to I am nothing to his conversion where God is everything. From pride to despair to joy because God was everything. That's our journeys. That's our own journeys. And when he realized that God is everything was when God used him for ministry. When we realize that God is everything, that's when we are his servants. That's when we're good instruments for his. That's when he uses us in ministry. In the year approximately 1300 B.C. is when Moses saw the burning bush. This is in Exodus chapter 3. God identifies himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the name of Yahweh, what these letters, initials, so to speak, what it translates from is, I am who am. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
I am means not just I exist. It means I am present actively. I'm not just some distant God or force. I am actively involved. That's what I am means. Whenever Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am this, I am that, he's saying, I am actively present in your life. Moses replied, this is in, starting with verse 11 in chapter 3, Moses replies, why me? He's starting his ministry. God's calling him to ministry, his vocation right now. The burning bush is vocation calling time. Moses says, why me? I can't do it. He goes through his conversion with God, and he goes with his brother Aaron to Pharaoh to do the ministry that God has called him to do. And, of course, we know what he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. You all know that song, right? And we know what Pharaoh's reaction is. He just added more work onto the slaves. He increased their quota. When they couldn't reach their quota, they were flogged. And God says, okay, the suffering's getting bad enough now. Moses, let's do some miracles. Let's show Pharaoh and the Egyptians who's got the more power. Me, the I am God, or all those little pagan, piddly, squeaking, little wimpy gods everybody in Egypt was worshipping. In Exodus chapter 7 through 11 is the descriptions of the plagues that happen. Each plague deals with a specific false god of Egypt to show that God is superior to those gods. For example, the first plague was the Nile water was changed into blood and it killed the fish. This mocked the god of the Nile. This God was supposed to be in charge of making sure the water stayed life-giving. And here all the fish are dying. In the second plague, the frogs of the Nile are multiplied and they infest Egypt. And this mocked the frog goddess who governed human fertility. It was a statement about where, where does fertility really come from? You want fertility? Let's multiply these frogs. <laughs> the third plague was an infestation of gnats. Then there was an infestation of biting flies, livestock disease, mad cow disease, the beginning of that, right? The worst hailstorm in Egyptian history came. Locusts destroyed the remaining crops. A sandstorm obscured the sun. All of these were dealing with different Egyptian gods. By the way, when the sandstorm obscured the sun, only Goshen, where the Israelites lived, was kept free of the storm. But the rest of Egypt was dark for three days. Dark for three days. What does that remind us of? The tomb. Mm -hmm. It's all connected. And it's cool. And this plague of the sandstorm mocked the greatest Egyptian god that they believed in. Ra. R-A. He was the god of the sun. And so by a sandstorm obscuring the sun, God was saying, I am obscuring your stupid little god Ra. And by the way, the Egyptian Ankh cross that sometimes Christians wear, that's the symbol of the god Ra. The cross with the loop around the top, that's the symbol of the god Ra. God said, uh-uh, folks, don't worship him. I'm a lot bigger than him. Look at the sandstorm that proves it. And the final plague was that at midnight, the firstborn, every firstborn was going to die of man and beast. 
that's when the first Passover took place. In order to keep the firstborn of the Israelites from being affected by this plague, they had to go through a certain ritual, the first Passover, that was symbolized from then until now we have it as part of our Mass. We have some of the rituals that began back then, the Passover meal, the Passover Seder, was what Jesus celebrated at the Last Supper that we now celebrate at Mass. This is how God told the Israelites to save themselves. Each household had to slaughter a flawless male lamb. What's that a foreshadowing of? And they had to smear its blood on their door frames. The blood is the key thing here for protection. Jesus' blood is key to our salvation. They had to roast the meat and eat it with unleavened bread. Where do we have our unleavened bread? The Eucharist. They had to be ready to leave in a hurry. Now, we're not supposed to do that at our Eucharist. The blood of the lamb was a substitute. This was made known to these Israelites. The blood was to be a substitute for the Israelites. Blood was being asked for that night. Blood was being asked for from every household. And if they took the blood of this flawless male lamb, then that would substitute for their firstborn children, their firstborn sons. It was a substitute, just like Jesus' blood is our substitute. His sacrifice on the cross substituted for us. Well, when this plague took place the next morning with all these dead firstborns, cows, pigs, chickens, the pet dog, as well as the sons, they're all dead. Needless to say, the Egyptians started to respect the Israelites. And they said, get out of here. We've had enough of this. Before anything worse happens, this is bad enough. Get out of here. I want to take a moment to pause to talk about God's harshness here by killing people. We tend to have trouble with the Old Testament because God seems so harsh and cruel. Well, let's think about what really is being said here. Sin causes us to enter into disaster. God wants to protect us from disaster. God gave the Egyptians nine other chances to say, okay, God, have it your way. He saved the worst for last. He gave them nine chances before doing the killing. Every time we sin, God gives us chance after chance after chance to make up for it, to change, to convert, to repent. Repent means change of the mind. And when we stay in sin, we end up being punished. But it's not that we are being punished by God. It's just that we're punishing ourselves because we've entered into it. We've walked right smack into it. And there are three basic ways that sin results in punishment that God allows. And this gets on the grand scale, but look at how it fits in our lives. This shows what happened throughout the Old Testament, but let's apply it to our lives. The one way that we just saw with the Egyptians was pestilence and disease. Death, plagues, pestilence. We can ask ourselves, how sick are we? Pestilence, disease. How sick are we really? That's what that kind of quote-unquote punishment, or that's what that kind of disaster is trying to point out to us. How sick are we really? If we're staying in the sin, how sick are we? Let's do something about it. Another method that we see throughout the Old Testament is famine. What ways are we starving? 
What are we really starving for? Who are we really starving for? And a third way is war. What about the wars within ourselves? We're going to see a lot of wars in the Israelite history. But what wars are going on in our lives? And who is it that we are really fighting with? We like Jacob wrestling with God? Okay, that's a little aside here. So the Egyptians say, go, get out of here. And to help you on your way, we're going to give you lots of our silver and gold and, and finery, fine clothing. And all we ask in return for all these gifts is get out of here quick. Some of the Egyptians, by the way, were converted by all of this, the presence of the Israelites and by what God was proving when he proved his superiority over the Egyptian gods. Some of the Egyptians left with the Israelites to go and serve the one true God. In Exodus 13 and 14, God is leading the Israelites through the desert back to home territory, Canaan. doesn't feel like home for these people. Their home was Goshen, Egypt. But God is now going to lead them back to Canaan. All they know is, I want to get out of this slavery. Moses, take us wherever you want. Once they get going, they say, uh, wait a minute. I don't like living out here in the desert. I don't like taking this long trip. I don't like eating what we've got here. God wanted to show the people that it wasn't just Moses leading them. God wanted to show the people that it was he himself that was doing it. So, instead of just giving Moses a map, I mean, hey, Moses had made it from Haran to Egypt, or from Sinai to Egypt. He knew his way. They, people always found their way around. They didn't need God to, to do anything but give them directions. But God chose, in order to make sure the people knew it was him that was leading them, he chose to have a pillar of cloud by day to lead them, and fire, because that was more visible than a cloud, at nighttime to lead them. A pillar of fire. What if you were taking a trip to Indiana and you weren't sure the way to get there, and in front of your car there was always a pillar of fire leading you? Would you think that maybe God was awesome? <laughs> well, after a while, they got used to this awesomeness. They got used to seeing this cloud and this fire, and they did not get used to the desert food and the traveling rations they had brought from Egypt, and they were getting real tired of this journey. It's like, wait a minute. In Egypt, we were prosperous. Even in our slavery, we had a lot of hard work, we had mistreatment, but we also had everything else we wanted. We want that back. And God says, um, wait a minute, what you're also asking to get back is the Egyptian mentality. Not just that they were making you slaves, but they were worshiping false gods. Do you want to go back to that? And the Israelites said, yep, you bet. They got food back there. They got McDonald's. What do we got out in the desert? Nothing. We got dried beef. So they began to complain. Do we ever complain? Do we ever complain that the Christian walk is too hard? Do we ever say that I'd rather go back to my old ways? Keep in mind that when we walk the way Jesus asks us to walk, when we walk in his footsteps, because that's the way he lived his life, the enemy does not go with us. Satan does not want to be where Jesus was, does not want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. 
He left heaven to get away from that. So when we walk doing what the real Christian life is, as hard as it seems, we have just given ourselves the best protection against evil that exists. We have just conquered demons big time. We have just left them in the dust because we're walking in Jesus' footsteps, the holiest place on earth. And demons can't stand to be around that holiness. Well, the Israelites are complaining. In Exodus 15, in order to soothe them, put up with them, help them along a little bit, God turns bitter water. This is in verses 22 to 25. He turns bitter water into fresh water miraculously. In Exodus 16, he creates the manna. And we all know, I don't need to go through that, how the manna is a precursor of the bread of life that we have at Mass and Eucharist. He also produces quail from the air. Big flock comes over. You tired of not eating meat? Here, whole flock is going to fall upon you. Now eat. Enjoy it. And in Exodus 17, he produces water out of rock. All the while he's doing this, he's putting up with their complaints. He's saying, okay, you're thirsty. I'll produce water out of rock. Not just so they stop complaining, but so that they learn again and more thoroughly. I am God and you are my people. Covenant, what covenant means. God is shaping them into being his people. And in order to do this, he gives them rules and regulations about how to be his people. In the Garden of Eden, just a couple of rules were necessary. We screwed that up, so God gave us a few more rules, and then a few more rules. And now we're at the point where God's about to give them the Ten Commandments and 613 laws. Like, okay, people, you need it spelled out in fine detail. Here it is. God wanted to use these rules and regulations to knit them into a family We have, what, uh, 2,200 families, something like that, in this parish. Multiply that out by uh, 4.2 kids per family or something. Doesn't it feel like when we go to Mass, everybody's a stranger? Most of the people, we coexist with them, and that's all there is to it. And we're supposed to be a parish family. This is just a few thousand people. Here we've got 2 million people that God is trying to knit into a family so that they realize they belong together, let's stick together, let's be in community together. He wants also to form them into an army that follows his orders. He's the commander-in-chief. You know how in modern times, the marching soldiers, the army, they have got to follow orders without questioning, or if they don't stay in line, if they don't follow orders precisely, if they don't work together as a team they've been built into, A whole war can be lost. God wants to build this army into a a true army that will follow his commands so that when he says something that sounds stupid like, walk around this town of Jericho a bunch of times and then blow your horns. What? That's how we're going to conquer this place? You've got to be kidding. He wants them to follow orders, and by then they do, but it takes a while before they get to that point. And he wants to transform them spiritually into his servants. He wants to show them and he wants to show us how to be partners with him, ministering to the world, ministering to each other, being God's instruments of ministry. That's how God gets his love into the world is through us. And this is what he wants to teach them. And this is at a time of a lot of barbarism in the world. 
This is at a time when the whole attitude of justice is, if we get into an argument and you punch me in the eye so hard that I'm blinded, well, I'm going to get Ralph and my kids and all my relatives from Pennsylvania and wherever else they live, and we're going to get together and we're going to kill your whole family. That was justice to them in those days. And God is going to say, uh-uh, let's keep it fair. If you punch out my eye, I punch out your eye and nothing else. That's it. That was fairness. Then later on, as the Israelites become more spiritually mature, they start suing each other. <laughs> I punched out your eye. Okay, let me give you some money to make up for it. That was even fairer than punching out the other person's eye. And that's when the lawyers started. Eventually, Jesus comes along and says, Never mind this eye for an eye stuff. Even if you're giving money as a replacement for your eye, never mind that. Forgive. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. The Israelites were not ready for that. They're still at the beginning stages here. It's got to be an eye for an eye concept. Imagine the Old Testament story as a baby being born and then growing up to maturity. Jesus is the one who comes along and says, okay, now it's time to become an adult. Here's how to live and love like an adult. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Are we adult Christians yet? If you can say that you do all that, you're an adult Christian. If you're in rebellion against any of that, you're still a teenage Christian. If you don't even know what that's all about, you're a baby Christian. If you look on your map again, the Israelites are traveling from Egypt. If you draw a line from, see where the rivers all meet right above the word Egypt? If you draw a line from there through the little passageway between the waters, go straight right, and then turn down toward Mount Sinai, that's where they're now traveling. And it took them three months to get there. This is in Exodus 19 that we're at now. This is the mountain that Moses climbs up to meet God. This is the mountain on which God gives the covenant, the new covenant relationship to Moses and his people, the one that is really now going to establish Israel as a nation of God that will produce the Savior of the world. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, this is the covenant. Remember what covenant means? I am your God and you are my people. God is saying here in these two verses, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, in other words, if you let me be your God, then you will be my people. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What that means for each of us, to be a kingdom of priests, we are all the common priesthood, we lay people. What does it mean to be a priest? Because when God said, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, he wasn't meaning you will be for me a kingdom of Levites. What does it mean to be a priest? How do we serve as priests? Ministry, offer sacrifice. We are called to make sacrifices for each other. Think of Jesus as a high priest, what he did for us. The sacrifice, praying for us, mediating. A priest is a mediator between other people and God. We are called to be intercessors. And what does it mean to be holy? Holy means to be set apart. So that's what God is telling the Israelite people then and what he's telling us now. And he's saying, if you obey me fully and keep my commandment, that's making me your God. You will be, this is how you'll be my people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
That's what he's asking of each of us, to be set apart, mediating for the world. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.